Um, and I hope to meet uh, uh, more people here and get to know you well and, uh, and just to get to experience uh, God's Word together and what He has to, uh, to say for us in this summer. So, um, the topic for today's sermon is a topic of despair. Despair. Sally was a middle schooler, actually finishing up middle school and looking forward to going to Middleton High School this coming fall. And as Sally began to think about everything going on this summer, she began to think about all the activities that she couldn't wait to do. I mean, there's things that you and I like to do, like strawberry picking and blueberry picking, and who doesn't like a good homemade blueberry pie, right? Uh, she was looking forward to that. She was also looking forward to um, getting time to, to write and to read. She loved to read novels, and Sally loved to, to write poems and essays, and in her spare time, she also liked to crochet and knit. Um, and there was times with friends that she would uh, gather with her friends. They would go down to the creek and, uh, and pick uh, crawfish. Has anybody ever done that? See how many can get and how big they would be? Um, or she would go swimming in the pond with her friends. And she really loved these activities. But there was one activity that Sally loved most of all each summer. And this one activity uh, was one that she would put way high, very high on her list to do, to do list uh, each summer. And she loved this activity more than anything else on her list. Compared to what uh, this activity, everything else was just dust in the wind. And this is what she looked forward to all summer. And that was her day at fishing on the lake with Grandpa, Grandpa Chuck. You see, it wasn't that uh, Sally and Grandpa Chuck were good fishermen. They hardly got anything. Um, but it was more or less the experience. I mean, Sally had a hard time sticking her hand in the slimy worm jar and putting that squiggly worm on the hook. And Grandpa helped her a lot of times. But uh, what she loved most about her time with Grandpa Chuck was the stories and the adventures uh, that he would talk about and his insights. See, Grandpa Chuck would talk about his experiences growing up, all the mischief that he got into, um, the things that he did when he was a kid that nobody knew about. Uh, he would tell stories about uh, him and Grandma in their younger years and how... Uh, they had hardly any uh, money, and they lived on nickels and dimes just to make it by week after week after week. And sometimes he would even talk about his time in the church where him and Grandma, and he showed up, he had his overalls and his untrimmed beard, and, uh, and he would talk about all the comments that, uh, that people would make against him and, and uh, how you know, the church warmed up to him and Grandma and how much they grew and, and learned in that little church. But not only would talk about his, not only would tell these fantastic and wonderful stories, but grandfather just had a way, Grandpa Chuck had a way of, of looking at life in such a beautiful picture. You see, he would be out on the boat and he would talk about the cool breeze that came against his face. He would talk about an, the, the stillness of the water on the lake or just the beautiful trees around the lake. And just how so many things that, that God has created are for us. 
and the beauty in that nature. Not only would he just embrace the beauty of nature out on the, on the lake, but he would uh, give Sally some wisdom and insights about her life to come, what the future might look like, what to look out for in life, what to, uh, what to look for um, in a school or in a, in a teacher, and how to treat her brothers and sisters. And so Grandpa Chuck, he was not just full of stories, but he was full of wisdom and insight into life and making decisions. Not only that, but uh, Grandpa Chuck loved to, to make jokes and to, to comment, to laughter. He was always talking. Hardly was there a dull moment in the boat. But today, Sally noticed something a little bit different. As she was, you know, coming into, you know, summer break, she began to, to beg and beg and beg Grandpa to take her fishing. And Grandpa, Grandpa Chuck was a little reluctant this time. And she didn't know why. But as soon as they pushed off from shore, they knew, she knew instantly there was something different about Grandpa Chuck this year. You see, I mean, she knew that in the, in the past year, Grandpa Chuck had lost Grandma quite suddenly, passed away. And not only did he lose Grandma, but uh, he had uh, been diagnosed with MS some months prior. But Sally took all this in, and she thought that tripping the, uh, the fishing trip this year would be just like any other year, that the same old Grandpa Chuck would be there, excited, full of adventures and stories and, and laughter and humor. But Grandpa Chuck this time was, he was silent, didn't say a word. So Sally, very perplexed at all this, because Grandpa Chuck was always a bundle of fun, uh, out on the lake catching fish. She asked him, she said, Grandpa Chuck, are you, are you mad? Are you mad at me? Grandpa Chuck said, absolutely not, Sally. I love you with all my heart. And I will always, I always continue to love you. She said, Grandpa Chuck, are you sick? Are you feeling sick? And Grandpa Chuck said, well, no, I, I've actually been feeling pretty good these last few weeks. Well, Sally, kind of perplexed, she thought if you're not angered and you're not sick, then why isn't Papa Chuck joyful and happy as he usually is? So she kept thinking, and then she stopped and she said, Grandpa Chuck, are you sad? Are you sad? Grandpa Chuck paused, thought about for a moment. He said, well, maybe a little bit, Sally, but... Uh, I don't feel it to the point where I'm to cry or, or extremely sad. Sally, she didn't know what to do. If Grandpa wasn't angry at her, if he wasn't feeling sick to his stomach, or, um, or if Grandpa wasn't sad, then what is Grandpa feeling? So she asked him, she said, Grandpa, you're not, Grandpa Chuck, you're not your normal self. What's the matter today? We usually have a grand old time in fishing. And after Grandpa Chuck paused for what seemed like an hour, he said, Sally, I'm feeling in a, in a, quite a time of despair. Despair, Sally thought. What's that? So she asked Grandpa Chuck. She said, Grandpa Chuck, what is despair? 
And Grandpa Chuck said, despair is a lack of hope. It's hopelessness, or it's a loss of hope. You see, Grandpa Chuck felt as though God had been distant from him. He felt that he had so many questions for God about what happened over the last year with losing Grandma and, and developing multiple sclerosis that he felt as though God was distant from him, that God was nowhere to be found in his own life. And yes, he, he walked with the Lord and, and he, he came to church regularly. Grandpa Chuck felt as though God was, was nowhere to be found in his life. And with the death of Grandma and, and, uh, and his symptoms, it, it was truly taking a big toll on his body. So it was beginning to put him in a state of despair. So Sally naturally began to get worried about Grandpa Chuck and trying to think how she could help Grandpa Chuck. How could she, what advice could she give that would kind of draw Grandpa Chuck back into his joyful or wonderful self? Or is there advice? If you were sitting in that boat next to Sally with your fishing pole in hand, with your little bobber going up and down, what would you say to Sally to tell Grandpa Chuck? What would you say to her? What advice could you give her that could give her some, some, some uh, support or some encouragement to tell Grandpa Chuck? What would you do in that circumstance? When somebody is, has, has no hope in sight and they're feeling hopeless and in despair and, and, um, and, and, and the world is in front of them that they can't act, what advice would you give for that? Where do you turn to give hope for the hopeless? Well, you see, Sally could have told Grandpa Chuck, she could have said, why don't you just man up and deal with the situation? You know? You know, pull yourself up by your own bootstraps. Come on, Grandpa. You know, why didn't she say that? You know, or she could have said uh, something, um, you know, like, uh, well, why don't we just pray about it? You know, I'll be praying for you, Grandpa. And that's legitimate. She could have said, uh, Sally could have said, Grandpa, don't you know that hope is having only positive expectations? You know, that's what hope is, Right? That's what she could have told Papa Chuck, but I think there's something else that could be said about despair and how we respond to it today. You see, Sally in her Sunday school class uh, with Mrs. Walker, they were going through the Psalms. And Mrs. Walker pointed out that Psalms 13 is a lament. It's a woe to me type of passage in Scripture. And what's so unique about the Psalms at least that I find about the Psalms, is that the Psalms are an expression of our concern, how we feel, and it's directed towards God. And to me, I think that's unique. Because in, in the narrative passages of scriptures and prophecy and, and the epistles that we see, all these genres of scriptures, we see God speaking to man, right? We see, thou shall not do this, thou shall not do that. And we see these instructions by God to man in most of Scripture, but in the Psalms, it's unique because we begin to get a glimpse of our conversation back to God. How can we speak back to God? So Psalms 13 is what came to Sally's mind in response to her grandpa's despair. 
So if you have your Bibles this morning, I'd invite you to turn there and to see what is a biblical response to despair. What is a biblical response to despair? Uh, Psalm 13 starts out, verse 1. It says, For the choir director, a Davidic psalm. I'm reading from the Holman Christian Standard Bible, so if you have another version, uh, please try to follow along. Psalm 13, from the choir director. So, Psalm 13 originally was written to be sung as a song, whether in the tabernacle or in the temple. Uh, And you can imagine with me that, that the writer of this psalm, who put lots of energy, lots of time into writing this, um, and then handed it to the choir director and said, I would like to sing this. Uh, I'd like to sing this song uh, this coming uh, Sabbath on, on Saturday night. I'd, we'd like to sing this song. You can see the choir director. Um, this is a lament. Um, no, we, don't fit, we can't fit this into our schedule. We need all praise music that's exciting, uplifting, and then it'll really get people moving. This psalm, it actually sounds pretty depressing. Yeah, so we're not going to sing that this week. So he probably took that psalm and, you know, put it in a little booklet somewhere and, and put it off to the side. But even today where we are, this psalm is extremely helpful. Now, uh, whether or not they sang this regularly, I think it doesn't diminish the importance of a psalm that's a lament, where the psalmist is crying out to God, He's saying, help me. The psalmist gives four questions in verses 1a and 2. Who is, who is the, let me read them for you. Verse 1. The psalmist says, Lord, how long will you forget me? Forever? How long will you hide your face from me? Verse 2. How long will I store up anxious concerns within me, agony in my mind every day? How long will my enemy dominate me? Did you notice the four how long statements? Two of those how long statements are directed to God, and two of those uh, how long statements are directed to his situation, right? What kind of how long statement is this? You know, if you're on vacation and you're driving with your kids, what question do they want to know? Are we there yet? Yeah. How long until we get there, Dad? How long do we get there, Ma? Is that this type of how long? When you're sitting in traffic, right? And you just come up and you can see traffic for miles and miles and miles of red lights. What's the first question you ask? How long, right? How long until, until things... Light up. You know, I got an appointment to make. How long? Is that what David, is that that what the psalmist is saying here? How long? I think in part, because it demonstrates that there's a frustration there, right? That he is frustrated by his circumstance. But in part, I think that this is deep within his soul. Of a, a place of deep desperation that he's crying out from. Not just a temporary how long moment until we get there but a how long that stems from his deep longing within him because of his circumstance, because of his situation. He says, how long will you forget me? 
And it's almost as a double question. He says, how long will you forget me? And then how long will you forget me forever? Does God forget people? Have you ever thought about that? Have you ever asked yourself that? Has God, has God forgotten me in my circumstance? And does, God, does God see me? Does he know what, he, what I'm going through? Do I have to make it apparent to him? The psalmist, he's, he says so. This word forgotten uh, is also used in the Joseph narrative. When Joseph tells uh, the baker and the server their dreams, and, and they both come true, what, does, what happens to the, the server? What happens to him? There's, there's a, little, a little clause in in Genesis 40 to 23, it says the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph. He forgot him. He forgot him. Genesis 30, uh, 41, 30 also has the same word appear in the same form. And it says, after them, after them, seven years of famine will take place and all the abundance of the land of Egypt will be forgotten. The famine will devastate the land. Genesis 41. And I think it's, as we look at, understand the word forgot here, I think it demonstrates a sense of priority. It's not forgot as though it's escaped someone's mind, but it's a forgotten way that says, uh, that, that the psalmist is crying out, God, where are your other, pri- you know, what, what priorities do you put over me? Look at, look at my situation. And God, don't you see what I'm going through? Can't you help? Why don't you help me, O Lord? I think that's what the psalmist is getting at when he says, Lord, you have forgotten me. He's saying, God, aren't I not a priority to you? Why don't you come to my rescue? The psalmist is in despair. But not only that, he says, he says uh, how long will you hide your face from me? Have you ever been talking with someone and have a conversation with someone and they turn around, you know, and they, and they start walking away from you and say, I'm not, hey, I'm not done, <laughs> you know? I don't know if that happens between a, a husband and wife at all, you know? Um, but when that happens, how do you feel? Is that, is that, are you just, oh, yeah, that's, that, that's okay. Yeah, that's okay. Now, how does that make you feel when, you know, someone you love and is close to you turns around and just kind of walks away while you're still talking? Nobody's had that happen to you. Kind of makes you feel kind of mad or rejected, doesn't it? Especially if it's someone you love. And it's kind of the same idea with, within the psalm is that when God uh, metaphorically uh, turns his eyes from you, that means you lose the favor of God. Or you kind of lose sight. God has kind of moved away from what's going on in your life. The eyes of the Lord in Scripture are always uh, you always want the eyes of the Lord to be on you in Scripture. And so when the psalmist says, you have hid your face from me, say, God, why have you turned away? Why have you turned away from my situation? Do you not see what I'm going through? And then two other questions he asks about his, his life. He says, how long will I store up anxious concerns within me? Or some of your versions might say anxious thoughts uh, within me. My agony in my mind every day. How long will my enemy dominate me? 
You see, he's looking at his life situation and he's saying, There's, everything is, is falling, or, falling down around me. And yet I don't feel God to be near. Notice how it's, these questions are almost like he's interrogating God, right? Like the, the, the person, the nature, the character, the work of God is on trial here by the psalmist. Can you imagine asking these questions yourself towards God? How often do we just sit down and say, you know, do we make a statement, God, how long will you forget about me? We hardly ever make that statement. We, we feel at, to the point where it's wrong to question God, right? Especially as, as you know, evangelical you know, Protestants, we feel like it's wrong to question what God has done. It's wrong to question you know, God's sovereignty. It's, it's wrong to uh, question you know, God's nature. And yet the, uh, the, the unbelievers in our lives, they're quick to question God, aren't they? They're quick to say, hey, look at God. He's, he's not consistent here. Hey, has God forgotten about you? And yet for us, it's like, well, we, have, we just say, well, we have to trust in what God has done. But the psalmist, he's not holding back. He questions God. He questions God. Not only does the psalmist interrogate God, but he gives God a petition. He petitions God. He pushes, he pushes God. Look with me in verse 3. He says, Consider me and answer, Lord, my God. Restore brightness to my eyes. Otherwise, I will sleep in death. There's three imperatives, three commands within this verse. Can somebody point them out for me? Three commands in verse 3. The first one, someone say, look. Yeah, look, consider. What's the second one? Answer, answer me. And the third? Restore, I have restore brightness to my eyes. These are all, these are all commands that he's saying. He's saying, uh, he's saying, look at me, God. Remember he said, you know, God has, has turned his, his face from me, that God, is, uh, that God has forgotten him or putting uh, uh, priorities above him. He, he commands God. He says, God, cause your eyes to look at me. Look at me. Answer my questions. Answer my plea. The psalmist is petitioning God to act. And then he kind of gives his, he gives him circumstance. He says, my enemies have triumphed over him. Or my enemies will say, I have triumphed over him. My foes will rejoice because I'm shaken. The psalmist feels as as everybody is against him. Turning back to verse 3, when the psalmist says, restore brightness to my eyes, he gives a little clause there. What does that clause say? Otherwise, otherwise I will sleep in sleep and death. You see, for the psalmist, it's, it's a little bit unclear from the context whether he is ill, whether he is older and close to death, but one side or another, death is on the horizon for the psalmist. And he knows that. And he is writing because he's, he's afraid that that could come without restoring his relationship with the Lord, with seeing the eyes of the Lord turn his way. 
And to see that, that, that God come by his side and be near to him. So he's writing out of, out of death and the psalmist says, look, at everything around me is falling down. My enemies are triumphing over me. God, where are you? See, up until this point, I think that both believers and unbelievers could say these first four verses. Don't we see, we see unbelievers all the time questioning God, right? They doubt in God's character. They doubt in God's nature. They doubt in what God has done. And sometimes as believers, we don't, we don't doubt enough. We just accept things for the way they are. So I think if the psalmist is, is making clear anything, that it's okay to question the nature of God. It's, it's okay to, to, to question the character of God at first, but we can't stop there. You see, unbelievers, they, they are quick to give commands to God, right? God, show me yourself or else I won't believe. God, do this miracle in my life or else I won't believe in you. God, show me, give me a sign or else I won't believe. But there's one word in verse 5 that I, I believe sets the contrast between the role of the unbeliever and the believer. See, up until this point, I think an unbeliever could, could question God and say, God, why have you forgotten about me? You know, God, you've hid your face from me. Uh, and even command God, God, do this, do this, do this. But there's one word, I believe, that sets the Christian apart within this passage. The first word of verse 5, what is that? But. It's a contrast. It's saying, this is my circumstance, right? The psalmist knows that death is on the horizon. He feels that God has abandoned him. And he pleads with God, God, look upon me. God, restore and my enemies dominate. This is a situation, but there's a contrast in the psalm. And that's where the word but Because while he's in this situation, it's how he responds that demonstrates his relationship with God. Can't that be the same for us in our own lives today? That there are many situations in life that that happen to believers and unbelievers. But to me, what sets believers and unbelievers apart is really our response within that situation, right? How does he respond? Verse 5, it says, But... Given the situation, living in despair, I have trusted in your faithful love. My heart will rejoice in your deliverance. I will sing to the Lord because he has treated me generously. The psalmist notes three things that he does in his situation. In the midst of despair, he does three things. He trusts, number one, he trusts in God's faithful love. Or if you have the KJV, It says mercy. You'll trust in the the mercy of God in the midst of despair. Now, if you notice, he's talking in the past tense. And so the psalmist is realizing that this has happened in the past, that God has been faithful in the past to me, that he has demonstrated his love, his mercy in the past, and so I'm going to remember that in in my present situation. That's why it's so good when somebody's struggling emotionally or, or, or physically to say, hey, do you remember what the past was like? What has God done for you thus far? For believers, it's, it's salvation. 
That, that Christ has, has worked within us to, to save us in his death, burial, and resurrection and where he is today so that we can be made free and whole, which has a huge impact on our future, does it not? And so the psalmist, while in the midst of despair, he reasons himself, that the, 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 the but, the contrast is that, but I will trust in what God has done for me. But he doesn't stop there. The next uh, statement the psalmist does is, is he will rejoice in your deliverance. So he's talked about the past. He says, these are the three things I'm going to do to deal with despair. I'm going to trust in the faithful love that God has shown me, the steadfast love that he has shown me in the past. But I'm going to look to the future. What's in the future for the psalmist? What's in the future? My heart will rejoice. He rejoices in what? The salvation, deliverance, right? Now, this might not be the, the salvation that we're thinking of um, in our lives today. But for the psalmist, it's that, that physical, that spiritual deliverance from what's happening. And he says, I will rejoice in a future deliverance. The psalm doesn't say, and God instantly healed him, or God instantly spared him. But it does say that his response is not just to think about the past, to think about the steadfast love of God that has met him in the past, but it's to think about what God, and to rejoice about what his God is going to do with him in the future for deliverance. Not only that, but but what does he say next? I will what? I will sing. How many times do you, you, know, you know, get up and you know, get ready from work and, and it's, you know, it's a Monday morning, you're dragging and you say, oh, I just feel like singing today. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I don't sing on Monday. I don't know about you. Uh, it takes me until about Friday or Saturday to actually start singing in my week. Um, but I think the same is for the psalmist. He's looking at his, his situation in despair. And regardless of, of, of where he is, he's, he's willing to respond in the midst of that. And he's willing to sing, probably doesn't feel like it quite at the moment, but he's ready to sing because uh, there's, there's a reason he's ready to sing. And it's because, the last line, because he, the Lord, has treated me generously. It doesn't say because I feel like singing today. He says no, because the Lord has again, in the past, treated me generously. So his threefold response to despair is trust in what God has done, to rejoice in what God will do, and to sing about who God has been in the past. If the psalmist took some time to go fishing, I don't know if he did or not, and he was sitting in that boat with Sally. What would he say to Sally? What do you think he'd say? You know, I mean, you know, you could see Grandpa Chuck. He understands despair. Does the psalmist not? I mean, the psalmist was, was looking at death on the horizon. And he's questioning, interrogating God. And he's petitioning God to look upon him. To remember him. 
And so he knows what despair is like. He knows what Grandpa Chuck is going through. What could he say to Sally to, to help her to encourage Grandpa Chuck? I think it might be this. I think he might lean in next to Sally and say, Sally, when in despair, invite God to be there. When in despair, invite God to be there. You see, while Sally could try to comfort Grandpa Chuck with words of wisdom or, or some statements of hope or things like, I hope you feel better, I think one of the greatest things that she could do is invite God into the situation. I think we could do that in our own lives too when dealing with despair. You see, despair is, is all around us, right? And I think we can do the same as a psalmist. That we can invite God to be there in the midst of despair. You see, when I say invite God, I'm not saying that God is distant. Because that would go against his, his all, always present uh, nature, his omnipresence. But what I mean by invite God into the situation, I'm, I'm saying make yourself aware of what God is doing already, what God has done for you. Because too often in despair, it's all about us. And so we begin to, to, to point the finger at others. And we begin to point the finger at God. And say, God, you're not here in this circumstance. But is he? Absolutely. And so for us to invite God in is to say, God, I don't want to, be, I don't want to close the door to you. I want to allow you into my despair. I want to allow you into my circumstance so that you can work within me. It might not change the situation as for the psalmist. The psalmist doesn't say, instantly God answered me. Instantly I was made better. Instantly uh, I was rescued from death. He doesn't say that. But he says how he responds given the situation. And I believe the same for us today. We can respond in, in, in three ways. To how to invite God into your life in the midst of despair is first exactly what the psalmist does. He trusts in what God has done for you. If you're, if you're you know, struggling with this today, just take some time and write down a few things that God has done for you in the past 10 years? Which ways has God made himself extremely apparent to you? You can write those things down. The second, as the psalmist says, he says, rejoice. The psalmist rejoices that God will deliver him. Write down your salvation experience. Write down the, 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 the time frame in which you think you were saved or when you had uh, that, that time when you said, this is when I came into relationship with God. It doesn't have to be a moment. It could be a season. And write that down and say, what has God done from that point? Or, or what ways can God deliver me in the future? How could God reconcile this situation of despair that I'm in now? And third and finally, you can choose to sing because he has treated us generously. Sing because God has treated us generously. Sing whether we have the, the feeling or the emotion to do it or not. 
but because as we lead our emotions, as we lead our heart, that'll bring us to a point where we can glorify God. Two passages that have helped me kind of understand this a little bit better over the years. Uh, the first would be Second Chronicles 16.9. And it says, For the eyes of the Lord roam throughout the earth to show himself strong to, for those whose hearts are completely his. You see, there's a, little, there's a little metaphor there. There's a little picture that God's eyes are roaming to and forth throughout the earth looking to make strong those whose hearts are completely his. So the question we might ask ourselves is, is my heart completely God's? Am I ready to see him work in this situation regardless if it changes? Will my response change? And second, uh, I think this is a more appropriate context for Revelation 3.20. When Jesus says, he's, he's talking about the discipline of the believer. And he says, listen, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to him and have dinner with him and he with me. And he with me. When in the time of despair, invite God to be there. There are people all around us that are dealing with despair. Some of those are relatives who are on the verge of death. Others are struggling with physical illness or physical disabilities. There are young adults that are struggling to make ends meet or lost a job or going through divorce. These don't have to be believers or unbelievers. People around us that we influence. Despair is hopelessness. But in God there is hope, right? Amen? In hope. In God there is hope. And for those, for, for those of us here or those who you know that are going through despair, don't let them do it alone. Think about young teenagers that, that think that the solution to despair is suicide. Suicide is never the answer. Think about ways that you can encourage them that in the midst of despair, in the midst of that situation that they're thinking about taking their own life, that we can help them to see God in that moment. That you can say, no, stop for a moment. This isn't right. This isn't who God made you to be. This isn't the image of God here. But it's a chance in which we can demonstrate and help others to see and to invite God into that moment to be there with them. So whether we are young or old today, whether you know somebody with despair or you're going through it yourself, Help people in despair by inviting God to be there. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we humble ourselves before you. And knowing that if we draw near to you, that you will draw near to us. So help us to, to submit to you, to know you, but to also to name you in our lives to invite you in in our times when we feel hopeless, when the times when we feel in despair, and to, to recognize and respond to your grace, to your love, your salvation, 
and all that you are, not just your character, but your work. Help us to know you intimately. Help us, help us to know you more. Father, as we, we live and breathe and see others who are struggling, help us to invite you into our circumstance. To say, God, we have questions that won't be answered. We have uh, concerns, and yet, God, we can respond by inviting you into the circumstance, into the situation, and watch you work, and to watch your grace abound. So, Father, help us to help others to glorify your kingdom and to invite you into our situation. In the name of Christ, I pray. Amen. Amen.